This morning we continue our study of Matthew's Gospel, and our scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, and then we'll move into chapter 10, verses 5 to 20. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers out into his harvest. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now whatever city or town you enter into, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there until you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or that city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You'll be brought down before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. This is the word of the Lord. As we move through this passage this morning, I want to highlight the flow. Firstly, there's a gospel-driven mission, followed by a wise word of caution, and then lastly, a promise of provision. So first, let's explore this gospel-driven mission. Jesus calls his disciples to participate in his work, and Matthew, uh, the author, makes it very clear that the same power and authority that Christ had, he's given to his apostles— And he's done this for the explicit purpose of authenticating his message. So he's going around saying, preach the gospel. The word gospel, of course, it means good news. What is that good news? Well, Christ has not gone to the cross yet. So the good news that they are speaking is that the king has come. The creator God is the redeemer God. That Christ, the one who has not only been expounding the law of God in the temple and on the mountainside, but who is demonstrating the power of God doing shocking, draw-dropping signs, restoring the natural order to the way that God intended it for me by healing these physical bodies and casting out demons and showing power over all uh, all nature. This gospel is that the king has come, and if there's a king, there's a kingdom. And if there's a kingdom, then there's kingdom rule. 
And so there's this invitation to bend the knee and to come into congruence and to trust in Jesus Christ, to believe that he is who he claims to be, that he is uh, not just another prophet or teacher or sage, but that he is the son of God, that he is God who has come to redeem us from our sin. So this is the mission that he's sending his apostles out to do. And he chooses the 12. And it's important for us to realize that he picks 12 specifically because he is reconstituting Israel. He chooses 12 men. There's no Gentile men. There's no men from other ethnicities or nationalities. And there's no women. So the 12 men, the 12 Jewish men, is specific to God, uh, Jesus, God in Jesus, reconstituting Israel, reminding of the 12 tribes. Because where the people of Israel failed, Christ will succeed. The call of God on the people of Israel was that through them all the nations would be blessed. That was God's plan since Abraham. But historically, through them, the nations were not blessed. And through the Pharisees, the nations are not being blessed. So Jesus is reconstituting Israel. He chooses these 12 men in such a way as that he is going to succeed where the people of God have failed. When we look for a picture and an image of the church, we find that later in Pentecost where uh, the prophet Joel prophesies and he says, my spirit will be poured out on your sons and your daughters and your sons and daughters shall prophesy and the men and women go out of the room at Pentecost and they go into the streets and they proclaim the gospel and you see men and women from every ethnicity coming to faith in Christ. This is a picture of the church. But we're not there yet. So this is Christ reconstituting Israel because Jesus has not given up on Israel. God has not given up on his people. Even though they've been unfaithful for literally millennia, God is faithful on the basis of his covenant and his love, and he's pursuing them relentlessly. So he gives them this gospel message and the significance of this, uh, these 12 that he's sending out is that they remind us that God is a God who wants to dwell with his people. He was dwelling with them in the garden. He was dwelling with them in the dusty box of the Ark of the Covenant as they were wandering through the desert. He was dwelling with them as he surrounded himself by his 12 dysfunctional families. God is a God of love. Our God, the Creator God, wants to dwell with his people, dwell with his creation. And so now he's surrounded himself with these 12 uh, disciples. And of course, as we move through into the New Testament, he fills his people with the Holy Spirit. We are now mobile temples. And he dwells with us again today. And of course, in the end, he will deal with us eternally. And so he's sending them, the people out to turn to God, to trust in him, to worship him, to leave their wayward worship. And he doesn't do this because he's needy. God is not needy. He doesn't need us to worship him any more than the sun needs us to tell it that we love it. We have the sun and we flourish or we don't have the sun and we die. We worship God and the soul flourishes, or we don't worship God and the soul, in a spiritual sense, it dies. That we end up curving inward because humanity was created for worship. And so therefore, to not worship the God of all creation only leads us to wayward worship. The the constant trajectory of curving in, the deterioration of the soul. He sends them out to preach the gospel, and he's moved with compassion. Verse 36 says that Jesus was moved with compassion. This is the strongest language in the Greek uh, to convey what he's feeling. Uh, some, some Greek commentators suggest that this actually isn't a common word in English. It's compassion. It's a common word for us. But the Greek word wasn't commonly used. <clears throat> the apostles sort of commandeered it to, to find a way to describe how deeply Jesus was moved. Because the root word for compassion here is it's this deep, driving, inner pain 
it, the, the Greek word for compassion is often associated with your, in, your innards and your internals, your bowels, your intestines. And it's, it's a way of saying that when Jesus looked at people who were wayward, not flourishing under the love of their creator, something inside him was just, he was shook. Have you ever had a, a sharp pain just hit you and you got to just grab something to steady you? Maybe your back, your leg, maybe you, you suffer an injury and all of a sudden you turn the wrong way and it twangs it. And the moment that you, you feel that sense of pain, you just have to grab something to stabilize yourself because you're just shook. When Jesus looks and he sees these people without love for their creator, without the worship of God, that the souls are not flourishing, that they're, that they're in wayward worship or no worship, he's deeply moved. He shook. He says they're like sheep without a shepherd. That's what shakes them. And so he says it were to pray for God to send laborers into this harvest in verse 38. Why would he say pray for it? Why didn't he just say, guys, don't you see what I'm seeing? Get out there. Let's go. Why does he say pray that the Lord would send people into the harvest? He says this, I think, because there's no way we're going to minister to people we have no compassion for. There's no way we're going to engage in the work and the care and all of the sacrifice that's going to come with it, the inconvenience of time, not being able to, as modern Southern Ontario, you know, Southern uh, Ontario sort of moderns with our commitment to busyness, living in a culture that worships the busy badge, the busier you are, the, the better you are as a person. If you told somebody you worked a 40-hour work week, it would just be like, shame. 40-hour work week, shame. Wow, what a slacker. What if you're great at your job? What if you believed there was more to life than work? What if you weren't validated by saying, being able to say every five seconds you worked 70 hours a week? What if you had relationships with people on your street and your children, or if you're married, your, your spouses, and like, what if that... But we, we live in such a culture of this obsession of that just the gridlock on that calendar. How do we go out into uh, the harvest? We're not going to do it unless we are deeply moved with compassion. And how in the world are you and I going to be shook? Well, that takes the power of God. There's no way you and I are going to listen to this sermon or me as I was studying and preparing for it and just go, wow, yeah, that's really compelling. I really ought to see myself as a minister in the harvest. I'm going to just roll these sleeves up, get a little, more, get a little bit more active this next week. No, we won't. Because we're not shook. We're not really moved. So Jesus says we've got to pray. Pray that God would send. This is the difference between a laborer in the church and the connoisseur in the church. The Pharisees were like connoisseurs. That's why Jesus didn't have anything good to say about them. They were like connoisseurs of religious practice. That's why he called them actors. You guys are acting. Call them hypocrites, right? In modern English, hypocrite means you say one thing and do another. But in the original language... The hypocritos in the Greek, it, it meant you were an actor, you were a stage actor. This isn't even who you are. And the, the connoisseurs of religious culture, they're really, they're so dialed into their preferences. They'll walk around the church and point out the weaknesses and the flaws and the ways in which it's not doing this or that or that thing like it's their spiritual gift. Ah, this is my gift. My spiritual gift is just walking in and noticing problems. That's my gift. What? You're a connoisseur. A laborer also notices all the weak points and the problems, but the, ra- but the laborer's like, let's go. Moved. Shaken. 
get to know our neighbors' names, open up our houses. We're moving. And so, Jesus says, you got to pray. But I want to draw um, your attention to another word. He doesn't just say, pray. I want you to notice the word, send. He says, pray that the Lord would send. That's an interesting word. If you say to your kids, if, for those of you who have kids, if you were to say, hey, do you guys want to go to the park? And they're like, hmm, uh, okay. Or, hmm, uh, no. You haven't sent your kids to the park. You're like, hey, do you want to be up to this? And then they go. But if you send your kids to the park, or you send your kids to the, their room, or you send your kids to, uh, you know, go, go take care of their chores, it wasn't so much, a, it, it, it wasn't so much like a discussion as it was uh, that they're responding to like this, this power and this authority. And I don't mean that we, we do that like a bunch of ogres in our home. I just mean that we're establishing the idea that this is going to lead to your flourishing if you're a person of hygiene. So please go take a shower. Right? So like motivated by love and care for the flourishing of their future, you send your kids to do things. It's not really a discussion about it. This is for your flourishing. Right? You send your kids to school. Right? Even, I mean, if, even for those of you in here who if your kids are homeschooled, you're still sending them to do their work. You're sending them with the flourishing. When God sends, it's actually in the Greek, it's, it's akbalo. It's the same word that is to cast out demons. It's a super forceful word. Pray that God would cast out his people. That's what Jesus says. Why would he use such strong language? It's not because God's an ogre. It's not because going and doing the gospel-driven mission is something that we don't want to do and we go kicking and screaming into the city. This, is, this language is talking about a very deep, powerful, transformative work of the Spirit that's happening here. If it takes the power of God to cast out a demon, it is also going to take the power of God to cast out his church. Because if it were not for the power of God, we wouldn't want to be cast out. We're like, no, I'm good. My life is pretty comfy, cozy. I got the parameters set up. I'm living in this world of comfort. I'm good. It actually is going to take the spirit and the power of God to do work in me and in you so that we feel a compulsion, so that we're shook, so there's a compassion to be sent. So it's not being sent out to do something that we don't want to do, but actually a heart gripped by grace this is, this is what we want. And we know we fail at this. But this is what we want. This is our desire to be sent. And so he says, pray that God would do that transformative work. So it's provocative prayer. It's not simply, oh Lord, send them. It's, oh Lord, change us. Oh Lord, change me. Oh Lord, send me. He says they're to be sent not to the Gentiles, but to the lost sheep. Of Israel, and I have mentioned it already. This is the intentional pattern of God spreading the gospel <coughs> and doing it through his people. He's not prohibiting a wider mission, he is prioritizing this wayward Israel in his mission. And significantly, he calls his people the house of Israel. And when he says that, when Jesus says the house of Israel, politically, there is no Israel. So Jesus is speaking in such a way, they're under absolute Roman occupation. There's no political Israel. 
But it showcases Jesus' compassion because generation after generation, they've been so unfaithful, but here he is relentlessly pursuing them. He's calling the house of Israel. He hasn't forgotten them. This is a picture of his grace and of his covenant. So who are these lost sheep? I mean, in one sense, they all were because like sheep, we're all prone to wander. Isaiah wrote about that, the prophet. So in one sense, they're all the lost sheep. But in another sense, by using this phrase, the lost sheep, this is an indictment again on the religious leaders because in Jeremiah chapter 50, The prophet writes, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. So Jesus is sending his ministers out because the ministers in the temple are not doing their ministry. They're actually the ones that are leading them astray. So he says, go out and say in verse 7, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's a pretty bold statement because there's already a kingdom. So if there's already a kingdom at hand, And then you go out and preach a gospel saying, behold, the kingdom is at hand. Um, That's intimidating language for a sitting ruling power. There's been a great interception of power. There's been a great interception of who's actually in control. When Jesus comes on the scene, God comes into our space and now he's announcing that it's actually his space. And this is a massive interception. And I, I know a lot about interceptions because I cheer for the New York Giants. And this is a massive going in another direction moment when Jesus says, you're to bring the message of my kingdom rule that I am the creator God who's come to renew. He will, of course, go to the cross where his kingdom will be established. And at that cross, a number of things will happen. There's the substitutionary atonement in the sense that he's taking the judgment for our sin. But there's the victory of Christ on display as he's got power over death in the grave There's a new humanity being ushered in. There's a new reality being ushered in. The the empty tomb is the teaser trailer that the end of humanity is the renewal of all things. That the the new heavens and the new earth will be the restoration of what God intended in the beginning. All of this is going to happen. And he's sending his disciples out. They don't know about that, of course. But he's sending his disciples out to get people to turn and to trust in Jesus Christ. And this is all happening around 30 AD in human history, somewhere around there, where God is... Come into our space and announce that it's his space. It's a big claim. It's an audacious claim. Is there any any proof to back up this audacious claim? That's why he's sending them out and saying, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons. That'll That'll catch people's attention. You're not just going out and saying, hey, trust in this Jesus Christ guy. You're saying the same things as Jesus Christ. You're operating the same power as Jesus Christ. You follow Jesus Christ. You're performing the same signs as Jesus Christ. This is God moving heaven and earth, not hiding in some obscure way. This is the abstract God that we can't grasp becoming very concrete in Jesus Christ who we can plainly see. He says, freely you've received, freely give, the highlighting of God's grace. Let's move on from this gospel-driven mission to this wise word of caution. Jesus says in verse 16, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. Because, of course, the sheep going out amongst the wolves means you're not the attacking party. You're not taking down your enemies like prey. An important little piece of information because some of his disciples absolutely wanted to be the attacking party. And they absolutely wanted to take down their enemies like prey. Jesus is like, you're not actually the attacking party. You're not hunting down your enemies like prey. You're the sheep going out amongst the wolves. And this postures us, I think, wisely, wise word of caution for how we engage in ministry in our city 
when he uses that phrase, being wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I'll paint a little picture for you. Let's say, before I get to the next section of my sermon, uh, the door opens and two doves flutter in here and they start fluttering around. I'd catch everybody's attention. You'd be fixated on them. You'd probably stop listening to me immediately. And you'd be watching the doves. And after five minutes, if the doves fluttered around and landed on the speaker over here or on a chair over there, some of you would remain fixated on paying attention to the doves. doves. And after five minutes, others of you may just basically ignore them. Let me paint the section picture. The door opens and two black snakes slither in here. That's a different vibe. (laughs) The reactions, I'm going to guess, would be quite different. It would be an absolute gong show. There would be people on chairs. There would be people screaming. There would be people running. More than one of you would be yelling, Kill them! Kill them! Kill them! Why? Because snakes (laughs) want to be killed by everybody. Instantly. There would be little children who had never even seen a snake before, who would probably be like, kill them, kill them. It would be absolute mayhem. I'm giving you these two different pictures because in both scenarios, neither can be ignored. But if the doves fluttered in here, I'm just going to venture a guess, nobody would be yelling, kill them, kill them, kill them. Would they arrest your attention? Yeah. Would you either choose to continue to fixate on them or ignore them? Yeah. Would you want to kill them? Probably not. Jesus is, I think, giving some wise posturing. For listen, you're going to do public ministry. You're going to go on campus. You're going to be in the workplace. You're going to be, uh, see yourself as a minister where it's like, I am going to look for ways to thoughtfully and genuinely give a defense for the hope I have in Jesus Christ. Be a person who shares my faith. Not just hide behind talking about worldview and ethics. And those are mega important conversations. I'm talking about getting past that to the good stuff. Namely having the words Jesus Christ come out of your mouth. Right? Not just camping out in, oh, this is what the culture says about sexual ethics. Well, here's my Christian view on sexual ethics. Those are mega important conversations. Wonderful conversations about justice and mercy and all manner of political dialogue. These are mega important conversations. But, the, but to get to the gospel, to share defense for the hope we have in Christ means you've got to take that jump. You've got to cross that chasm and talk about why you have hope and peace in your life because of your faith and your trust and your rest in Jesus Christ. And that's going to require a vibe. Why? A wise vibe. Wisdom. Not shying away from conflict, not shying away from difficult things, right? He's, he's saying use the wisdom of the serpent. Serpents have to use wisdom to survive because everybody wants to step on them. So Jesus isn't saying don't be a serpent, be a dove that just flutters around and doesn't offend anybody. No, be wise as a serpent because you've got to engage in like mega difficult conversations. So you've got to have the wisdom to be like, I'm not going to invite unnecessary problems here. Because we know that the disciples did get scourged in the synagogues and brought before councils. And we we do know that globally speaking, to share your faith is to put yourself in harm's way. For some Christians, it's physically physical harm's way. For you and I, it's not physical harm's way. It's social harm's way. Right? So how do we navigate that? How do we do that? 
It doesn't mean we just bow out and say, well, that's going to be absolute social death if I talk about that, so I guess I just never will. It's just wisdom. When's the right place and when's not the right place? Well, maybe you're never going to ever, ever do it on, on, this, on the scene in your office. That's fine. There's no command in Scripture to say, get on a soapbox at work on Monday. That's absurd. That'd probably be like snakes coming in the room. But as you develop relationships with coworkers and sitting and having coffee and sharing your life together, that's probably a very appropriate place for you to find ways to be bold and to use this wise word of caution and to, and to uh, share, share uh, the gospel. And so there's a difference, of course, then, between being rejected on the basis of sharing our faith in Christ or those who are rejected simply because they're obnoxious. Those are two completely different rejections. So we're encouraged to use this wisdom. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. We don't need to be putting people on edge like they're afraid we're going to strike at any moment, going cobra style. <coughs> but we're also not going to shy away from difficulty in any, in, in, in any respect at all. We can be very bold. When you see Jesus doing this, it looked like reclining at the tables. He was always in the company right, of those who wouldn't have essentially believed anything that uh, his father uh, called him to preach and to teach. But he, of course, he did this in loving and grace. And so lastly, let's move on to this promise of provision. And maybe before I, I say that, I'll just make a quick comment. For those of you exploring Christian faith today, I want you to notice that historically speaking, this all ended up taking place where these disciples did go out, they did do these things, they did perform signs, it turned the ancient world upside down, and instead of the message of Jesus Christ being laughed out of the Greco-Roman culture, it actually exploded and permeated. And I think a good question for you to ask if you're exploring Christian faith is, why would like, these great rulers pay any attention to illiterate fishermen? Right? Why would that matter? From a sociological point of view, why did the whole culture shift and change and turn on its head? Not in a hundred years after a legend developed, overnight. Now, if you've been exploring Christian faith and you wonder if believing in the resurrection is even a reasonable thing for reasonable people to think and to, to believe, then I'd invite you to reach out to me, say, let's have a coffee and talk about this. And I'm not going to take time to do it now, but I'd be happy to sit down and have a coffee with you and walk you through, historically speaking, why believing this is absolutely reasonable. And that globally, there's billions of Christians, many of who are very educated, reasonable people. We haven't chucked our brains at the door to believe any of this. We just acknowledge that behind all of the uh, scientific reason for the ways that we understand uh, the cosmos and our own existence, that there's limits to science. And what we don't want to do is elevate the scientists and make them the priest of culture. Otherwise, we're just making uh, sort of a, a, another uh, grand exclusive truth claim because we don't like this grand exclusive truth claim. To elevate the phenomenon that cannot be explained in that sense. So I'd be happy to talk with you more about that. I'm not going to take time now to do it, but reach out, we can have a coffee. Lastly, this promise of provision. Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to speak. Now, some New Testament commentators suggest that the worry of some of the disciples might not have been that they were, um, that they were afraid of the persecution, though no doubt they would have been, but that some of them would have been equally afraid of their unskilled ability to speak, much less speak in public. Most people do not want to speak in public. The number one fear 
to my knowledge, you can correct me on this, those of you who study psychology, I think the number one fear for people is ostracism. They don't want to be ostracized. They don't want everybody looking at them. They don't want to be, have all the heads turn. And so these guys are just afraid of that ostracism. Most people would rather be, the fear of death, I think, is below ostracism. Most of you would rather be dead than doing what I'm doing right now. And you're like, exactly. So, <laughs> Jesus says, don't worry, what you would, don't worry about what you would speak. In that hour, the Holy Spirit is going to give you these words to speak. You're going to know what you speak in that hour. It will come to you. This is an encouragement. This is an encouragement that has echoed for millennia to all of Christ's disciples and comes to you and I today. The one who calls, equips. From the rest and renewal that we have found in God's grace, may you and I go into the city as ministers of this gospel. May we do this as Jesus did, moved with compassion. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves, from a place of rest in our souls, confidence, humility in the, the joy that we have in him. May we do this with humility and confidence, and may we go out with this promise of this provision that we will be guided by his spirit, that as we are faithful and diligent to come to him in prayer, to spend time regularly meditating on the goodness of his word, that he brings things to, his, to our remembrance in those moments by the power of his spirit, that we'll be guided by his wisdom. If he used the stammering lips of these fishermen, he can use the stammering lips of this church. He can do it. And so may we do this. May we go out full of his spirit as ministers of this gospel in this city. Let's pray.